Listen up. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Little Urban League's radio show and podcast. My name is Lyndon Pryor. I'm the interim president and CEO. It is so great to be back with you again. Remember, you can find us every Thursday when the show um, releases, wherever you get your favorite podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate us, review us. Um, let us know what you think about the show. Um, it is uh, we are actually um, recording this a little earlier than normal. Um, and so by the time you all uh, get this, well, depending on when it and it releases, uh, some things may have passed. But in, in full disclosure, I want to take uh, a point of privilege and, and recognize our wonderful producer, Miss Sherilyn Martin, uh, who is sitting here a little salty um, on this afternoon <laughs> because we had some uh, technical difficulties with an earlier cast. And so uh, we're, we're having to, to hustle to get a show up and fresh but that's okay um things happen and she is amazing and i'm just so incredibly happy and thankful to have her as part of this team she's done uh just remarkable work for the urban league and on behalf of the people um and so it's gonna be all right <laughs> she looking at me funny that's fine all right but a few things just kind of housekeeping notes um you know Voter engagement, uh, you know, we just had on the 19th was National Voter Registration Day. Please, please, please get registered to vote. Again, get registered at your current address. So if you have moved since the last time you voted, you need to re-register at that address. If your name has changed because you got married or you got unmarried or whatever happened, um, be sure that you re-register so that you don't have any issues at the polls. Um if you want to volunteer with the league, we're going to be doing some voter engagement, some phone banking, as well as um, some canvassing of the community to make sure that people get out and vote. Um, please sign up to volunteer with us. You can uh, just hit us up at LUL.org. Go to the volunteer link um, and you will see some opportunities down there at the bottom of the screen in order to, to get registered with us to volunteer to help get the vote turned out. Um, it, we have a really important election here in, in the Commonwealth. And so it just is a big deal. We need people to show up and show out on Election Day because so much is at stake it truly is um a matter of your voice is your vote and so we need folks uh turning out as well as 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 in full effect excuse me um so that we can we can have the best results possible also um next week the the week of the 20 the 27th um is national older workers week um and so that is a big deal for us because you know many of you know we have our urban senior jobs program which is for um seniors age 55 and up who are trying to re-engage in the workforce and so that is a week in which we honor um those among us who are older workers and who are still serving um, we appreciate you all uh, for the work that you do um, and, and want to be a continual support. But just if you have an older worker, either on your job or just in your life, be sure you celebrate them next week. Um, and just kind of the last note uh, next week on the is also going to be homecoming for the Russell neighborhood. Um, that celebration will be led by our pop Russell Place of Promise. 
please check them out and see what events are happening. There are tons and tons of things um, going on all week long. And so uh, come out and celebrate with uh, the Russell neighborhood. Uh, and then finally, our young professionals meeting um, is September 27th from 5 to 7 p.m. You can find the details on the Louisville Urban League website. Be sure to check it out. If you have not joined YP, um, you know, please do. Uh, we are looking to grow that organization. They support the work of the league um, and do a lot of good work in our community. And so come out and join and be a part of that. You can also join the Guild, too. That is our other affiliate organization. But come be a member of the league um, and support our work in all sorts of ways. So that is that. Um, just in general, though, folks, I hope that you have had a, a wonderful and blessed and prosperous week. I hope that it has been safe, um, that you and your families are well. And it is just good to have you all back um, with us on the show. Now, on to this week's guest. Um, we've got another uh, phenomenal member of our community, um, a brother who is doing great work on behalf of the people and who has always been ten toes down uh, for black folks in this uh, city and particularly in the West End. Um, our uh, council person, uh, Mr. Corey Arthur, welcome to the show, sir. Peace. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Um, you know, we're going to get into probably a few different things, but as always, we start with um, just introductions. And I don't like to introduce the people. I like the folks to be able to tell who they are from their own mouths. And so if you wouldn't mind, please, sir, tell the people the quick and dirty on who Corey Arthur is, um, where you're from, um, what you do, why you do it, and how'd you get to this place? I'm Ja'Cory Arthur, born, raised, and proudly still living in the west end of Louisville. I'm originally from the Parkland neighborhood, where Muhammad Ali is from, mm -hmm. and now I live in the Russell neighborhood. I'm also a father, a full-time father, and uh, of two, two small kids, so they, <laughs> they keep me young and, and keep me active and, mm. and keep me always looking for events and things to go out and do in our community. I'm also a teacher. I taught in Jefferson County Public Schools. I manage education programs at our local public media station. Mm -hmm. I've done workshops at libraries, community centers, boys and girls clubs all over the place until eventually I, I got a job at our local historically black college, mm -hmm. Simmons College of Kentucky. So over there I teach music and I also teach in the sociology department. I'm also a city council member, which mm -hmm. means I am writing, making, trying to raise awareness around public policy issues mm -hmm. and, and passing laws. And uh, I, I would say that has really all kind of culminated into me being a, an organizer, just trying to bring people together to work on common goals in our community. Mm -hmm. And I think to a certain extent, everybody has organizer experience. If you're a teacher, if you're a parent, you know, yeah. if, if you're doing any sort of community work, everybody's trying to bring folks together to accomplish some goals. So mm -hmm. th that's me in a nutshell. Um, so, well, I'll ask you the, the standard Louisville question. What high school? <laughs> I caught the bus, and I always say that, because when I say where I went to high school, people are like, oh, you lived out there. I did not live out there. Uh, but I caught the bus out to PRP, okay. Pleasure Ridge High School. I, yeah. I went down that uh, mm -hmm. Wilson, turned into Cane Run, turned into the whatever that highway was called. But I, I caught the bus out there for a while until I got me a little 
little hoopty. <laughs> then I, <laughs> then, then I rode out there. Uh, yeah, I went to PRP. I actually uh, got inducted into the Hall of Fame a couple years ago at PRP. Oh. So that, that was kind of exciting because, you know, high school wasn't always something I look back on and I, I reminisce and thought those were some favorable years. Mm -hmm. But it was nice to know that since I had left mm -hmm. uh, the high school, or at least the administration there, thought it was important to, to recognize a, a brother. So Wow. PRP. Okay. Go Panthers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So as a Louisville native, we'll start here. Because um, I like to ask this of folks who, who have grown up here is, how do you see the evolution of Louisville? Like from your vantage point, from the time, you know, as a kid up until now, like how has the city evolved and changed? I think the city's evolved in a way that our country and our world has evolved when we think about access to information. Mm -hmm. So something that I always kind of just I'm impressed with is when you look at history books, two centuries of black Louisville, you see how much work was put in by black Louisvillians to get Louisville to where it is today. Mm -hmm. But when you go back in time, you know, Albert Mazik, um, Lyman T. Johnson, you know, Milbert T. Maupin, um, Batty, these people did not have internet. You know, they were just figuring out the information from the library, from the right. books, and from sharing those resources with one another. So fast forward, we got the internet in our pocket. Mm -hmm. We got access to the world in our pocket on that smartphone, on that tablet, on that laptop. And I'm impressed with the way that people organized, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago just because they had to go and do it in a way that was so organic and homegrown mm -hmm. that today it, it should be easier. But mm -hmm. I think because of the internet, it, it's made it a bit harder because there are so many distractions. Mm -hmm. And I think from, from my point, being on city council, when we try to get people involved in the work that we do, there are so many other options for right. them if they have the capacity. And when I say if they have the capacity, I'm also thinking about how wealth and income inequality mm -hmm. has exacerbated over the years. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, it can feel absolutely depressing. And it's like, you're so overwhelmed with everything going on in the world, you don't want to be involved in right. change. You don't have the time or the energy to be involved in change because you are cynical. You don't think there will ever be change. Mm -hmm. But I, I often tell folks, instead of using that as a reason to give up, you should use it as a reason to get up. Yeah. And you know, when I'm worried about something that's going on with the school system, my my like response is how can I get involved and be a part of addressing that? Mm -hmm. When I'm worried about something going on with city government, that was my response. How can I be involved mm -hmm. and help shift that and change that? When I'm worried about something in our music scene, how can I be involved? So I, I think it's really easy for us to say we just give up on everything and nothing works. Mm -hmm. But what's the point of living? Yeah. You know, we, we gotta have some sense of hope that things will change. You got hope that when you're driving up the street, that little paint in the middle of the road is enough to keep people from crashing into you. Right. You got hope in that elevator that that string is gonna keep you from crashing down. You got hope that the, the planes that fly over you ain't gonna crash down into your neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So we gotta have a sense of hope that there will be some sort of change. Mm -hmm. And when I look at the past, I see that hope. Our ancestors truly left us blueprints from the work that was put in on the Underground Railroad mm -hmm. to the work that was put in in the Civil Rights Movement to all the movements that happened in between that to the movements that are happening today. 
if our ancestors could do it yeah. without the internet and in slavery or in segregation and in so many more worse conditions that we'll never truly understand, we can do it today with more access to information um, and, and really more access to knowing uh, what we need to know to mm -hmm. implement some of those changes and work on those, on those changes. So I get hope from the people who came before me, but as far as how Louisville has evolved, I think it has gotten harder, but it's also gotten easier to get involved. When your child enrolls in Kumon, they can reach math and reading mastery that will allow them to have a lifetime of advantages. Kumon is an academic achievement program, preschool through high school, the world's most successful after-school learning program. To enroll today, contact us directly at 502-552-0014. Wellington Kumon, located at 3610 Mall Road, next to Target in the Newburgh area. And so what is, I guess, drill down on that like what is the disconnect right like when you talk about that that our ancestors have left us a blueprint and that we know in a sense what can be done or what is possible what for you do you believe is are the barriers to us actually acting and implementing on those things well in some cases that there's a sense of shame Mm. Um, I have, for the past few years, been involved with a movement known as the American Descendants of Slavery, and that has made me shift my thinking about the institution of slavery, where you shouldn't be ashamed of your grandmother and your grandfather who were enslaved and in chains and tortured and raped and lynched and shipped and sold all across this country. Something was done to them. Right. Um, they you know, against their will, built the United States of America mm -hmm. with all of the blood that has been shed in this land and all of the uh, war crimes that have been committed in this land and elsewhere because of this country, you got to keep in mind that there would be no United States of America if there were not these ancestors that we had. Right. So having a sense of pride in who our ancestors are is important because if you learn about slavery as a fourth grader, as a fifth grader, I don't know about y'all, but at one point in time, I went through a phase in elementary school where I didn't want to be black because I, I was ashamed of what our ancestors went through and I was ashamed of what it meant to be black and to have dark skin. And I think once you have that mindset shift and you have teachers in front of our students who are actually saying, no, this is something you should be proud of, that they actually built this country. Something was done to them and we got to always fight to have repair for that, reparations for that. But keep in mind that there is no America without black people. That means the actual infrastructure from the railroads to the buildings that we have. But also think about pop culture. Mm -hmm. There's no music. When we talk about R&B, soul, rock and roll, hip hop, that is American culture. That's some of the truest forms of, of what American culture is. And it would not be here if it were not for our ancestors. And we, you know, we don't even talked about mm -hmm. all the inventions that we are behind from right. the traffic light to the cell phone to, you know, so I think a sense of pride is really important mm -hmm. because when you know that's what you came from, you know you can achieve that plus. Mm -hmm. and, and that's one of the first barriers that I try to work on with my students. One of the first barriers I try to work on in community organizing, even just thinking about how those stories can feel shameful, but also stories today can feel shameful. You right. can't afford to pay your rent, that sucks, but I just want you to know 
it's not necessarily because of what you've done as an individual. Yeah. There's a landlord or a property manager or somebody who owns a corporation that's greedy. Mm-hmm. And your rent money should be paying for these fixes in your apartment. Mm-hmm. What they're making on your back should be used to make sure that you have quality living conditions. So mm-hmm. being able to turn those stories of, of shame um, into action mm-hmm. or those stories of uh, disparity into action is really important. And I, I think that's a disconnect that we currently have. Mm-hmm. That's important. I mean, I think um, kind of an, an interesting point We're you know, just as a small diversion, like we have now this urban farming um, program. We got a grant through National Urban League and the USDA to be able to do it. And one of our TA partners, um, some guys out of Philly who have, they got a farm in the middle of Philadelphia out there. Um, it's really interesting because he, he talks about shame, particularly as it relates to land. And he, you know, he says that part of the work that we have to do is to help people, particularly black people, get reconnected to the land because there are so many of us who have these this sense of shame um, or uh, resentment for, you know, farming and working in the land because it is attached to this horrific institution that was slavery in America. And so we've grown up and you've got kids now who are like, oh, would you ever be a farmer? Well, no, I ain't going to do that. I'm not a slave, that type of thing. And it's like, no, 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 no. Right. Like we were farmers long before there was ever slavery. Right. Like this, this is something that is in us and a part of who we are, not something that we should be um ashamed of or uh, neglectful of or reluctant to engage in because it is a part of who we are and don't let what happened to us separate us from the thing that is absolutely a part of of who we are. And so I, I appreciate that, that idea of how shame comes into play. Uh, you touched on, <clears throat> man, that... A lot of different places I want to go, but you mentioned briefly about ADOS and about the fight for 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 reparations. And I wonder for you, um, a well, let's do this because I, I I don't like to assume that people know, right? Like, if you want to talk briefly about what is the movement for ADOS, um, and for you, how do you define reparations? So the ADOS American Descendants of Slavery movement. It's really about two things, two main things. We have two main political goals. is to achieve reparations. I'll mm-hmm. define that here shortly. And also to have a black legislative political agenda for black Americans across this country. And when I say black Americans, I do mean descendants of slavery, but mm-hmm. I also mean other black Americans who migrated here um, after slavery was legally abolished on paper. When it comes to defining reparations, we consider reparations uh, to really be what reparations has been in this country in the past a few decades and centuries, and that is direct monetary payments. And also, eventually, we need to talk about land redistribution as well, mm-hmm. uh, because something that was promised um, as the Civil War was ending was that 40 acres. Right. And because we were denied that, and in some cases, a very small amount of people who were formerly enslaved received that, but it was taken away, they were never able to acquire generational wealth. Mm-hmm. which then was passed down or not passed down to us. So mm-hmm. we consider reparations to be payments, monetary payments. We also consider reparations to include uh, land. Yeah. So 
I think, you know, a lot of times when this conversation of, of reparations comes up, it is particularly for detractors uh, for one reason or another. There's this thought that, like, it's just not possible. Right. Like it just we can't do it. It would cost too much. It's not, you know, not feasible, like too far away, whatever. Right. Like all sorts of different excuses get made. And so what is the response um, for you to those folks who would say, like, ah, this can't happen? I think there were plenty of those folks when we were enslaved Mm. who thought we would never wake up one day and not have to hit that field and and break our backs until the, the sun is going down. And I think about that, again, to give me a sense of hope, I also think about people who would go to downtown Louisville and see Negroes only, or colored only, or white only signs. Mm-hmm. That used to be our reality. So when we look at our reality today with all of the, the inequality when it comes to wealth, I have to believe that there will be some sort of you know sense of change. Mm-hmm. And we might not, see it in our lifetime mm-hmm. what king said about the promised land i might not get, get there with, with you, you. but mm-hmm. he worked towards it until he was killed over it mm-hmm. so i gotta have a sense of, of faith and hope just because like i said our ancestors did it i know that we can do it we're really continuing that work mm-hmm. we're, we're talking about fighting for something that was never given to us that is owed to us mm-hmm. for building the united states of america and being harmed and discriminated against in the united states of america so it, it has happened in other senses of, of liberation. It's also happened for other people who have experienced and suffered other harms, right. from Japanese Americans who suffered the internment camps mm-hmm. uh, to different tribes across our indigenous peoples who were here before so mm-hmm. many other folks came. It has happened. We just have to believe that it'll happen for us. Right. And there is a... a legislative um, or policy, obviously, component to this. Um, I wonder for you and, you know, we can I want to dive into kind of your your pathway to counsel. But just starting here, does does your viewpoint of reparations exist only at the federal level, or do we look at it locally as well? Because, I mean, while granted, the promise was a federal promise, right? Like the federal government is what is owed. But I think there is a legitimate argument to be made around, all right, what does this mean for local municipalities, states, and others where obviously there was benefit to those institutions as well. Mm-hmm. Um, like slavery benefited not just the United States as a whole, but there were individuals as well as organizations, communities, um, cities, and whatever that benefited from from the horrific institution. And so is there a role to be played at the local level when it comes to reparations? I think that local governments, state governments, absolutely have a role to play mm-hmm. to have some sort of remedy to address slavery, the institutions of segregation, and so forth. I think reparations, the way that that it's defined that I just laid out, has to be a federal government program. Mm. Because when you talk about the amount, a professor at the University of Connecticut, Thomas Kramer, uh, used a formula that estimated how many people were enslaved uh, from 1776, because we're we're talking about when the United States of America came into Mm -hmm. existence, all the way through the Civil War, the amount of people who were enslaved uh, multiplied by the wages at the time, by you know, a, a fellow white worker who had their wages at the time that were actually paid. Mm-hmm. We were un, you know not paid. 
uh, multiplied by a 3% compound interest rate over time, um, in 2022, that number was $20.9 trillion. Mm-hmm. And I say that because if you take all the local and state budgets across the country and combine them, we're talking less than $5 trillion. Right. And that would mean you don't have a local government. You don't have a state government. You, right. you call 911, ain't nobody picking up their phone. You call 311, ain't nobody picking up their phone. Yeah. You ain't got no council person, no mayor, no nothing. So I say that the federal government needs to pay that debt when we talk about monetary payments because the federal government is the only institution in this country that can create new money. They can literally print money. And we saw that happen in the thick of the coronavirus pandemic. Mm-hmm. They were you know, giving out these, um, these checks, these so-called stimulus checks. We call them survival checks. Right. But they were handing those out and, and depositing them into people's bank accounts. Mm-hmm. The federal government can do the exact same thing for descendants of slavery in our bank accounts. Mm-hmm. All right. So with that, transitioning just a little bit into your path to Metro Council. What, and you talked a little bit about kind of what spurred that, but but if you can, just give us a little bit more detail around like, all right, what led you um, to, because I think I've had conversations with you before and you're like, I don't know that I ever necessarily saw this for myself um, until it happened. And so what kind of got you to a place where like, no, I can run and I can win and I want to run and I want to win. Um, how did you get to that place? Music. Mm. I saw the movie Drumline in like the fifth grade. And at that point, I wanted to play snare drum. Mm-hmm. Um, so I joined band in the sixth grade. And, you know, Drumline, the HBCU mm-hmm. um, aesthetic was totally different than like sixth grade band. We playing hot cross buns and, right. <laughs> and Mary Had a Little Lamb. <laughs> I was like, this is whack. You know, this ain't what Nick was doing in the yeah. movie. But, uh, Music got me into, you know, band, my band program. Mm -hmm. But at the same time as I'm learning how to read sheet music and learning about all these these dead white dudes in Europe, in the Mm -hmm. classical music room, I'm producing music at the crib. You know, I I bought a recording studio. I saved up a bunch of money from Christmas and my birthday. And I'm teaching my cousins and my neighbors and my siblings how to produce music and write music. Mm -hmm. And what I noticed every time somebody would you know, rap or every time somebody was saying is they are expressing everything that we're going through. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, that was the only way we would even know about some of these issues because you know, as a child, we're, we're, to a certain extent, we got a lot of escapism. I'm gonna play with my Legos. Right. Gunshots are happening in the background while somebody's fighting across, you know what I mean? So this music was really a teaching tool for us to express ourselves. It was our therapy in a sense. Mm-hmm. And I'm hearing all of these experiences of my people in this music, in my home, but also if I just turn on the radio and, and listen to some some artists who are, um, you know, Jay-Z, you know, that's 50 Cent when I was coming up early yeah. 90s, mm-hmm. not early 90s, but early 2000s, but even think about the early 90s, pop, right. think about Big, Biggie. think mm-hmm. about all of, you know, the different hip hop figures and what they put in their lyrics. Mm-hmm. Our people going through this is being injected into my ears and being injected into my psyche. Mm. So as I'm making music, I'm, I'm doing the exact same thing. And then eventually I realized, you know, about to end high school, what I want to do in my life. My band director said, you should, you should be a teacher. And I'm like, why would I? I, I don't want to be a teacher. Mm. But I was already teaching. We'd be in the back of the band room in the, uh, the uniform, like the marching band uniform room 
with a recording studio and a mic hanging from the from the you know from the rack, just back there rapping and talk about what we're dealing with in life. So I'm already teaching. I mm. just wasn't doing it formally. I wasn't certified. I was, mm. you know, the classroom was was the closet right. <laughs> to, to a certain extent. So teaching, um, and then the same thing I saw with my family and friends. I saw through my students as far as this is what we're going through. Mm. Um, we have this hunger to change it. We don't necessarily know how to change it. Eventually, teaching music in JCPS and after school programs, community centers, et cetera, uh, performing music connected me with an organization called Iman, the Inner City Muslim Action Network in Chicago, mm-hmm. where uh, the president uh, and the founder, Rami Nashashibi, was in Louisville for a conference. It was actually Festival of Faiths. Mm-hmm. And he invited me to this artist retreat. And that was one of the first times that I saw myself in the change as a musician because mm-hmm. I was around other musicians from around the world who were organizing and using their music to build power with their people and not just rapping and singing and teaching, but bringing people together to say, what action can we take to raise awareness around these issues, but also solve these issues? Mm-hmm. And that experience, uh, again, being a music teacher, getting the opportunity to teach at Simmons College of Kentucky, the very first college where people who look like us could get a degree in this state, mm. that further deepened my consciousness as far as, as change. Mm. And between Iman and Simmons, Simmons also introduced me to the ADOS movement, it just grew. Yeah. And, and it was almost like this this snowball effect where every experience I got as a musician and as a teacher mm-hmm pointed me in this direction of, okay, I'm rapping about it, I'm singing about it, I'm teaching about it, but now I gotta be about it through policy. And really before I decided to be a politician, I wanted to craft policy and influence policy just through the music and the teaching sense. But once uh, the former council person in this district decided they weren't running again, Mm -hmm. that was another opportunity that I saw and I said, I'm gonna go for this thing. And then I won. now I'm, now I'm on council. So <laughs> it, 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 really, it really started with, with just you know, making music. And I think what's important about music and being a creative and being a legislator is as a musician, I had to develop a sense of confidence in, in doing what I was doing. Those music programs gave me a sense of confidence. They showed me how to collaborate and work with people and they showed me how to be creative. Mm. And as a policymaker, you gotta be able to work with other people. You gotta have a sense of confidence in what mm. you're doing and have that hope. And you got to be creative about solutions for your community. So I think more creatives should get involved in, in policy work. Mm. So and think about that. Like, you know, when I think about you and I've said this to Tim Finley Jr., I've said this to Shmeek Parrish Rice, I've said it to Couture Heron, um, you know, what I love about you all and what you all have done is in a very real local way, you all are in your own ways, demystifying this whole process of getting involved in electoral politics, right? Like, because there are so many people um, and we do such a terrible job in this country of making it seem as if our elected officials are all something, right? Like, they all, you, like you gotta be rich. You have to have gone to a certain school. Um, you gotta look a certain way. You gotta present a certain way. You gotta do these sorts of things. Um, and it's not that, right? Like it, it really is not that. And I love the fact that you all have have been able to pull back the curtain and say, like, look, 
this is who I am. This is y'all know me. <laughs> y'all know where I'm from. And and if I can do this, now you have set, you know, uh, you've opened the door for people to be like, oh, okay, if Jacora can do this, then mm-hmm. absolutely, then I can do that too. Do you feel, and I wonder as you were going through it, did you feel a sense of responsibility to do that as well, to kind of pull back the curtain and demystify this process? Or is that something that you've kind of just realized as you've gotten into the work? Yes, and, and we have to if we want change to happen. The only way that the civil rights movement worked is because just regular people were involved in that change. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just the bourgeoisie Negroes who wore the suit and tie. Mm-hmm. It was people who work in class, working class, poor folks who were in those streets marching. In Louisville, it was middle schoolers, high schoolers, teenagers mm-hmm. in those streets on the, on the front lines putting their bodies on the line to make sure that, that people saw what they were going through and, and did something about it. You got to involve everyday folk mm-hmm. because the majority of the United States of America is everyday folk. And how do you win an election? The majority. How do you pass policy? The majority. Mm-hmm. How do you start a union at your work? Majority. So mm-hmm. it takes a majority. And if the majority is everyday folk, you have no choice but to engage with everyday folks mm-hmm. and lift everyday folks up. I, I run into people all the time and they're like, I want to run for Metro Council. I'm like, Where, what, what district are you in? I'm a district four. You should run. Yeah. These seats are temporary. Mm-hmm. They belong to the people. Mm-hmm. They don't belong to any specific person. Everybody should run and nobody should feel entitled to your vote. We all got to have a, a have a voice and a say in change. And policy is, is one of those ways just because policy has done so much damage to us. Mm-hmm. It should also be used to undo some of that damage. It should also be used to heal. It should also be used to repair. So absolutely. I think people like Shamika Parrish Wright, Tim Finley, myself and others almost consider us just sticking with like the music concept. We're like trap drums. When we think of politicians, we always think, oh, the the person in the suit, uh, a white dude, they come from a certain background. Mm -hmm. But think about how popular music has shifted over the past decade. Mm -hmm. You might hear a a Britney Spears song with some trap drums in it. You know what I mean? That hi-hat, that (laughs) that's normal now. We got to keep doing this work until the people who look like us are considered normal in these spaces. You should not have to show up a certain way. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That that whole respectability politics concept that's over. That's yeah. dead. And and part of why that has to be dead is because, think about King, that brother wore a suit probably every day. Most of the pictures you see him in, he's going to have on a suit. He was killed in a suit. And they shot him in his face. Yeah. And I love King. I'm a Kingonian. Yeah. That respectability politics, that is over. And I'm not saying that to advocate for violence in any way, shape, or form. What I'm saying is the way you speak the way you dress, hell, in some cases, even like the, the dynamic of your voice. I, I, I'm turned up at a few council meetings. You got to. Because yeah. sometimes people ain't going to hear you otherwise. Mm-hmm. And again, I am a reflection of the people that I serve. Mm. So if you can't deal with me, you can't deal with what my people are going through. Right. I am my people. Mm. And people got to understand that. Absolutely. So for you, what has been, what's been the most eye-opening part? of becoming a council member? I thought that I was gonna be a counselor, but I I really realized the job is about being a counselor. Hmm. Hmm. And that might not translate on a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I'm saying two different words. Right. A lot of times when people call me, 
They want to vent yeah. about what they're going through. And then what I got to try to figure out is how to decipher that issue and diagnose and say, okay, you need to talk to this department or I need to talk to this department or we need to work on this policy or what's the ordinance, what's the resolution. Right. And, and that's hard, um, especially considering there's so much misinformation mm-hmm. about programs, about services, about council offices. I bet if we walked outside right now and asked 100 people, what, what does a Metro Council person do? Right. We might get 110 answers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like straight up. I thought I was going to be a legislator and work on policy. And the job is so much more than that. Right. And and to a certain extent, I think that's a disservice because your tax dollars pay for 26 legislators. Mm. And if I had to count, I would say maybe maybe a handful of them, maybe five folks are legislating on a regular basis. Maybe. But a lot of times we get caught up especially the folks who are in districts that got high needs, we get caught up just managing the executive branch. We get caught up just trying to help our constituents get connected to services. We get caught up just trying to follow up on services that they should be getting, but for some reason, somebody somewhere across the street didn't do what they were supposed to do. So then we spend a lot of our resources, and when I say resources, we got one full-time staff person Mm -hmm. who really runs the office on the day-to-day, and then you got the council person who's technically only part-time we end up using our limited resources doing management of the executive branch mm-hmm. instead of being the legislative branch to pass actual legislation. And I hate that. You know, people will say, oh, I love this politician, I love this person. What policy did they pass? Right. I, I don't know. And, and in some cases, it's not their fault. Mm-hmm. It might be on the majority because mm-hmm. they allow that. I'll never forget Barbara Sexton Smith. The first meeting we had when I was deciding to run for, for, for elected office, I'll never forget this. She said, a politician gets away with what their voters allow them to get away with. Mm. I'm going to say that one more time. A politician gets away with what their voters allow them to get away with. Wow. So if you don't pass no policy and that person keeps getting into office, it's yeah. on the voters. They have a choice to hire and fire this person. So I was shocked. And when I got on got on council, how many people didn't necessarily expect me to do my job, which is to pass policy? And that is scary. Yeah. So I, I'm saying this to every ear that's listening. Expect a politician, the base word is policy, to pass and work on policy. And now on the inside, what shocked me the most is that people are okay with it. Mm. A vast majority of the council is okay with that. And, and I can't blame them sometimes if your voters are okay with it. Because then it's like, why am I going to get mad at you for not working on policy if the people who elected you and sent you up here to City Hall don't right. care if you work on policy? Man. The hell I'm going to be mad about? <laughs> you know what I mean? I ain't elect you. Yeah. So it, it's, it's frustrating. And to a certain extent, that's like internalized decades deep, mm. you know, habit. I still got people who call me aldermen. Mm. They 20 years late. We ain't had a board of aldermen since before 2003. City and county merged. And I know that at 31. So how do you not know that? Elder? You know what I mean? So it's 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 scary to think about. We are we are years behind in terms of our political consciousness. And once we address that, that education piece, right. and once we come together and get organized as a people, we can do whatever we want. Louisville Urban League's Kentuckiana Bills program is your introduction to the skills trades that lead to careers in construction, plumbing, electrical, carpentry, and HVAC. 
This six-week hands-on and technical education program provides training for job seekers to earn three national credentials, JCTC credit, all while connecting employers with a qualified, skilled workforce. This innovative partnership is funded by Kentuckiana Works and the Kentucky Education and Workforce Development Cabinet. For more information, visit lul.org backslash jobs. Yeah, so I, I mean, I think this is the the, the crux of, of so many things because when, you know, when I think about, you know, the league has a program we're doing intensive tutoring um, to help close the achievement gap for our students. We are focused on um, and particularly uh, math and reading proficiency. And I say all the time, like, it ain't, it's, reading, reading is an oversimplified term mm. because when people hear reading, they think about like, oh, okay, can you say the words on a page, right? Like, and that somehow is it. And reading is so much more than that. It is your ability to comprehend what is being said to you and then be able to really ultimately critically think about what that thing is and how it fits into whatever it is that you're dealing with into your life. And so when we have really generations of people who are not proficient readers, we have folks who are not necessarily going to be able to critically think about the issues as it reflects them, which comes all the way back to they're not going to ask the question of what policy did you pass? Mm -hmm. They're not going to care about whether or not, you know, you know, your legislators spending all their time, you know, working on executive level issues as opposed to doing legislative things. And so education becomes such a critical piece of the entire puzzle, and I and I bring that up on it to say that you know so much of this also feels intentional, right? Like Absolutely. that we have gotten to a place where if we don't focus, where you have people who are literally passing laws that don't allow teachers and educators to do the work of teaching your children how to read, <laughs> um, and what that then ultimately produces is a society of people who aren't thinking critically, and therefore they are not empowered or aware enough to know how do you approach your council person? How do you approach your mayor? How do you approach your state representative um, or your congressman or your senator or what have you around the issues that actually matter to them? And so I wonder for you in, I guess I, I, I hear you when you say like, this is incredibly frustrating because I wonder if, you know, you talked a lot about there being hope in this and I do wonder, have there been feelings of of despair as well when you get in and you kind of see this thing from the inside out and you're like, wow, this entire system is working really against the people in a sense, right? Like, and it right. feels, I imagine for you, as it feels for me, as you know, just as a citizen and as somebody who's doing, you know, work from the outside, it feels overwhelming, doesn't it? Every day, every single day. The U.S. Department of Education did a study not too long ago, and it showed that over half of U.S. adults read at a sixth grade or less level. And for me, what, what that meant was, like you said, people aren't comprehending. Hell, even myself, I got to read ordinances over and over and over and over mm -hmm. and over before I can really understand them. I'm on Google, like, finding synonyms of words that don't make sense to me, trying right. to bring them down to my level. What that means is the people who are involved in organizing work 
we have to make sure that we meet people where they are. Right. Elected officials have to meet people where they are. We go out and we knock on doors. And we do it to talk to people, share resources, check on them, see how they're doing. That's important. If you don't meet people where they are, it's easy for them to say, I don't get that. I don't understand that. I'm overwhelmed. I don't want to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And that that's that's key because a lot of people who are engaged in, in organizing, you know, they'll use a word like fascism. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Right. My granny don't know what that means, bro. I, I barely even know what that means. And then you use a bunch of different definitions. You know yep. what I mean? And then people get confused. <laughs> yeah. We got to really meet people where they are. Mm-hmm. And we got to relate everyday issues to policy. Mm-hmm. We got to relate it to policy. I was talking with somebody about speed bumps. That's a policy issue. They're dealing with people speeding on the street. Well, the next street over got a bunch of signatures. Why don't my street got, got as many signatures as we need? Well, you got to get signatures from owners. Right. That's a policy issue. Yeah. When you can connect the dots, when now we can work together on changing that. Or, you know, some years ago, Councilwoman, former Councilwoman Keisha Dorsey was working on the neighborhood plan um, ordinance. And the process was way off because it was like so inaccessible for people to be involved in helping create their neighborhood plan. Mm -hmm. She made some changes to it so it was more accessible. More residents got on it. You made sure that more renters were on it. You made sure that, you know, the racial demographics were reflected in the actual neighborhood. You made sure the meetings happened at an appropriate time. Mm -hmm. You got to be able to connect things to policy in a way that makes sense for folks. And I, I think as a teacher, that's something that I've always had to do naturally. But it doesn't always come natural for folks. And I'm putting a plea out to the people who are doing organizing work. You got to check yourself. Because sometimes we get into these these ideological arguments where it's like, again, who's worse, Biden or Trump? In some cases, people think they they won in the the same. same, You know what I mean? Or it's like that Democrat means a lot to certain folks or that Republican means a lot to certain folks. So you got to be able to build with people who you might have ideological differences with. Right. You might come to my town hall in a Trump T-shirt. I still got to serve you. Right. I still got to you know approach you with some respect and camaraderie and work with you to address issues. So, I mean, it's so complex and there's so yeah. much that goes into it. Though I feel despair every single day. But the young prodigies give me hope. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. We're talking about teenagers who are helping pass policy and mm-hmm. still working on passing policy even after they just pass something else. Mm-hmm. Um, our ancestors didn't give me hope. It's like the extremes give me hope. The people who are super old and have already done all of this yep. or the people who are just <laughs> not know, getting yeah, into yeah. it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the group in the middle, I don't know. My yeah. age, I don't know. Yeah. But the kids and the elders give me a whole lot of hope. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I, I absolutely appreciate that. I mean, I don't like to, I think I, I, I raised, I asked you a question just because I do think that it is easy for folks to forget, like, well, not even necessarily forget. I think it is easy for folks to misunderstand how complex the work is, right? Like, and how nuanced it is. Like, we had a, like, Cassandra uh, Webb from RPOP was on here one time, and we got in there talking about um, just some housing policy stuff, right? And we were, we were just kind of laughing but lamenting about, you know, how we both, the Urban League and RPOP, you know, we get, constituents and, and clients and people in the community who are just like, well, why ain't y'all doing this? Or why ain't you just build this thing over here? Just do, And we just like, if it were that easy, like if it right. were just that easy, like 
we'd be all about it, right? Mm-hmm. Like if somebody could just drop a pot of money and we could just throw up, you know, some houses over here or throw up a new building over there or renovate this place. If it were that simple, like we'd be for it all day. But it is so incredibly nuanced and complex in places and not because we wanted it to be that way, but just because it is. Um, and it's hard because we want the same thing that you want. But we are having to deal with the systems that have created the structural barriers that make this just complicated. And it just is so hard to to do. And so I think it's important for people to recognize that, you know, even for you, you know, because I think there are people who probably think, like, oh, you a councilman now. You're like, you're going to get this done. Mm-hmm. And it's just like. Nah, I wish. Yeah. Like I, <laughs> I and, wish. And, and the limitations of, of being a, a policymaker is you pass the policy, you usually don't implement it. Right. Like w- we gave all this money to the Office for Safe and Healthy Neighborhoods. They have to implement it and do the work and go out and run the violence intervention and prevention programs. Right. So we can fund it again. Mm-hmm. We cannot fund it again. We can change the amount of funding, but at the end of the day, they have to implement it. We give all the money to public works. They got to pick your trash up and your recycling and clean your alleys and your streets. And I think a lot of people miss that whenever we're doing the work we do. And I, you know, I, I'm not looking to blame any specific person. I think everybody contributes to some of the misinformation sometimes. And it's never as easy as it should be as far as the change that we want to see. I, I also think about the Louisville Tennis Union yep. and the work that they do is fine example of organizing and just mm-hmm. everyday people coming together, bringing their resources together, bringing their capacity together, their expertise and skills yeah. and doing something. And it's intentional when we think about the dissension between everyday people, between working class people. When we're fighting, yeah. then we ain't got to point to the billionaires. Right. You know what I mean? We ain't got to point to the corporate greed. We ain't got we ain't got to point to the corruption mm-hmm. because we're, we're too busy fighting each other. Yeah. Dr. Kevin Cosby used this this analogy not too long ago that I have really had to think about, and it was between is a bull and matador. What's the what the yeah, what the bull, the bull okay. and the matador? And he talked about how you know he would sometimes consider himself the cloth. Mm. What is it? Was it red? Maybe yeah, red. I don't know a lot about this sport, so I'm butchering this right. It's all right. <laughs> but like he's the cloth. Um, and the bull is so mad at the cloth, and he considered the people who were frustrated with him and had dissension with him as, as yeah. the bull. He's the cloth. You don't even know that this matador got that knife or that thing that behind sword. his back yeah. ready to poke you up. And and when the attention, as far as our attention, is on each other and fighting one another, mm-hmm. that is intentional. Yeah. That's why I like... Early on, I would get so, so hurt being in these spaces with some of our people. And like we get into it over something so trivial and so petty because I'm like, do you understand I'm in rooms with people who do not want you to live? You understand there there are people we just had a commission that studied city county merger that took a vote to change the way that the urban services district work, which means the old city of Louisville. Right. They added. Uh, emergency medical services, EMSs, to um, the services that are provided. And then they said by 2030, the recommendation was that the city budget wouldn't pay for the urban services district. Mm-hmm. That means by 2030, if you live in the inner city, if you live in the old city of Louisville, if this recommendation gets made into a state law, our taxes are, are going to get raised. Right. And when I say raised, right now we're paying about a $14 million gap of of need to make sure that we got um, – Firefighters that are on our streets in the inner city, streetlights, and trash collection. And now the fourth service will be EMS. 
So if our taxes have to get raised by at least $14 million, some of us ain't going to live. Right. At least in the city of Louisville. Yep. You're going to be living somewhere out on the county line by Bullitt County somewhere or somewhere else. Mm. Policy. These are policy choices and policy decisions that are getting made, and we're fighting each other mm. instead of focusing on that. We're not the enemy by any means. There are people who do not want you to live, and we really got to reorient ourselves to, to have those discussions because sometimes we get caught up way deep in things that put us against one another mm -hmm. and takes away time and energy for where we should be focused, taking action at. Absolutely. So, you know, you you say that makes me think of, so last pod, um, we had Josh Poe on, and we were talking about the Louisville Tennis Association, and, and the conversation around power came up. And because I and I told him, you know, I think that beyond racism, sexism, or pick pick your favoriteism, power is the conversation that we don't talk about enough. And power is the root of it all, right? Like it is about who has it, who wields it, um, who doesn't have it. Um, and I and I and I was talking to him just in the sense that you know. Power, I think, is also a very hard conversation to have because it is very difficult. One, I think it can be hard to understand um, just because the word has such strong connotations in many different places, but also because I think that people, particularly in this country, we have an, an interesting um, relationship with the, with the concept of power in that nobody wants to be powerless but nobody wants to be viewed as being powerful, right? Like, and so there's kind of this disconnect of like the people who are in power. And I mean, even the people who you legitimately would say are in power, whether it's the president of the United States or, or pick your favorite billionaire or whatever, they would kind of shun the term of like, oh, I'm powerful, right? Like, because like, oh, that that's too much. Like, I don't, I don't want to be seen as if I have um, some sort of authority or mechanism over people's lives. Uh, and you'd have people without power who are like, oh, well, I don't want to be, you know, too powerful, but mm -hmm. nobody wants to be powerless. And so I think all of these dynamics play into like our reluctance and inability to talk about power. But I think for me, um, and, and Josh and I were kind of on the same page in terms of like power is so important of a conversation to have. And I wonder for you, sitting in a position of power, I mean, it is a position of relative power and certainly in a place in the Metro Council that has some measure of power. How do you, whether that be in talking to your constituents, but I'm, I'm also really interested in talking to your colleagues on council, how do y'all talk about power or do you talk about power? Is it a part of the conversation and do you all think about it in terms of how do we share power and give power to the people at large? We talk about power without using the word power. Mm. Uh, a practical example, when you walk into a Metro Council meeting, and there is a group of people in the seats, in the gallery, a lot of times people will come up to me and say, what's going on? Mm. Because going back to when we talked about normalcy and the trap drums, yeah. it is not normal for a group of people to be at a Metro Council meeting. Mm. And that's sad. And again, there's some intentionality behind that. Right. But when people show up, when people show up, they are showing you what power is. I always say that the power of the people is stronger than the people in power. There's one council person for District 4, that's me. I got 30,000 constituents, tens of thousands of constituents. The power is with the people. 
you best believe if I get repeated phone calls about something, it's going to make me move. You best believe if Tammy Hawkins gets repeated phone calls, but she is quick to say she's going to listen to her constituents and she's serving the needs of her constituents. Mm-hmm. There's one Metro Council person, 30,000 constituents. Now, some of them are babies. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but keep in mind, again, there's thousands of, of people. And I'm just talking about council districts. Think about the mayor who's representing hundreds of thousands of right. people. How many people, and this is what organizing is, how many people can you get on the same page to wield your power to do something to make change. I just think of power as being able to change something. Mm-hmm. And whether it's a union, you get majority people to vote for a union. Whether it's an election, you get majority people to vote for a candidate. Or whether it's Metro Council, where it just takes 14 votes. And I say just, that can be hard sometimes. Right. 14 votes to pass something or stop something legislatively. Mm. 14 votes. Since I've been in office a little bit over two and a half years, I've never had more than a couple dozen constituents who came together and used their power on an issue mm-hmm. by themselves. I'll, I'll be clearing that. By themselves. I had some, some, some pastors come together for some hot dogs. Huh. And is that how you want to use your power? That's how they wanted to use their power. What can you come together to use your power for as a constituency? That is so vital. And I'll also say that we use power in the sense of not using the word on Metro Council in a way that um, Carter G. Woodson talked about in The Miseducation of the Negro. He talked about how black politicians, because of the dissent with constituents, they have a lack of respect from their constituents. Then when they get into those those halls of power, they have a lack of respect from their colleagues. And I'm going to give you all some juice right now. If I did not come up through the protest movement, through the activism movement in 2020 and come on the Metro Council, I don't think I would have the level of power that I have on the Metro Council hmm. because they think for some reason I can press a button and BLM's going to show up to the, <laughs> to the next council meeting. You know right. what I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? Or like, um, you know, and, and blessed to his family, when Quintez Brown mm-hmm. was about to be bailed out, yeah. I got a text. If mm-hmm. you can do anything to change this, please do, because it's going to look bad. So when I say the power of the people is stronger than the people in power, Whoa. if people came together, yeah. if people came together, and I'm not talking to everybody, that's overwhelming. Yeah. But if enough people. You can just fill the gallery. If the gallery, if you can get 50, forget 50, if you can get 25 people to a Metro Council meeting, to push a certain council member. I've seen council members change their votes because of people in the crowd right there in that moment. There's so much power in people. I think uh, maybe Fred Hampton said, he was talking about where there's people, there's power. Mm. That is so true. And we don't always know how to use that power. And in a lot of cases, we don't always know that we have that power. Right. Again, you hire and fire politicians. So how are you using your power to, to make some sort of change? Now, let me be clear in this. Going back to being a King o- Kingonian, yep. leadership is not just about consensus. Mm-hmm. All right? So a bunch of people on the same page is consensus. But is it right? Right. Is it something that we consider moral? So if a bunch of, bunch of people, let's say 100 constituents hit me up and said, hey, you need to clear this camp. I yeah. don't care how many of y'all hit me up. I'm not clearing that camp. Yeah. So it, it also has to align with values and it all mm-hmm. also has to be something that's not going to harm somebody. 
Yeah. So you got to be clear in that. And in some cases, instead of just trying to find consensus, as a leader, you also got to mold consensus. Right. And that's equally as important. I, I just want to be clear that just because you have the numbers doesn't mean that you, you should be able to do whatever you want. Yeah. I mean, that's how slavery happened. Absolutely. That's how segregation happens. Mm -hmm. So we also got to make sure that what we're doing in our numbers and with our power has a sense of consciousness and, and morale to it. Otherwise, we're going to use that power in the wrong way. Your power got to have love in it. Yeah. That's essential to mm -hmm. using your power in the right way. And I think that taps into, you know, an interesting point that, you know, deals with negotiation, right? Mm -hmm. Like you are a one of, of 27 and y'all are in there debating policy and legislating. Everybody's got their own interests they're rarely ever, and I don't know that I can find one. There, there's no such thing as perfect policy, right? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. it, it just, it just doesn't happen. And so, and I think that sometimes is a is a tough pill to swallow for constituents because they, you know, people believe, and particularly in this day and age, like we believe that certain things are just right and they just need to happen, and and this is what it should be, and anything less is a travesty. And I wonder for you how you deal with that, you know, with your own constituencies and, and really, I mean, even beyond District 4, right? Like, I know that's who you serve, but you you there and you do an awesome job of representing black people in the interests of black people. Whether or not, you know, sometimes you've had to, you know, swallow some things to be like, this ain't the perfect policy, but it gets us most of the way there. And and this is a step in the right direction. Like, how, how are you? Well, I, let me ask this. How was that the first time you had to do it? <laughs> um, and then how have you been able to grow, um, particularly in your ability to explain that to the folks you serve? Well, just going back to being a music teacher, I know that when my students perform, it ain't going to be perfect. Mm -hmm. um, the difference between that and what I'm doing now is that instead of you playing a wrong note or playing the wrong rhythm or your step ain't right, well, now it, it might result in some actual physical, psychological harm right. to our constituents if we don't get something right policy-wise. Somebody might miss out on something. Somebody might not be able to access something. So it's hard to accept. But something that does a, a bit of harm reduction that makes it easier is bringing people along in the process. So I'll point to the Louisville Tennis Union again. We have been working together on what used to be the historically black neighborhoods ordinance, this anti-displacement ordinance for years. Mm. And when there's an amendment or a change, we talk about it. And we say, what are the, the pros and the cons of this? Mm. Are we willing to negotiate with this? Are we willing to let this go? And going back to what I said about the power of the people, having them a part of public policy, which I think all public policy should involve the public, right? it makes the conversation different. Because if I'm in the Metro Council chamber, introducing policy and just sharing, you know, the details of it and the why and the how. Sometimes it almost looks like it's the council person. Mm -hmm. Just like I saw an op-ed criticizing Councilwoman Donna Purvis about this barbecue grilling or legislation. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's, mm -hmm. you know, the op-ed characterized it as you can't grill in your front yard or your backyard. And I don't know why she introduced that. I don't know if there were constituents who asked her to introduce that or who wanted to work with her on that. Mm. So when you're working with the public, it's important to bring them along in the process because then it's easier to make those decisions. It's also easier to wield that power in front of other powerful people and let you know, I got an army of people from across the city and all sorts of council districts who support this policy. Mm. And if you do not support it, 
they are willing to hold you accountable when it comes to election time. Mm. And, and that's a way to wield power. It's hard, though, um, but you just got to make sure you're working with the people to, mm. to let them understand what are the pros and cons of things and know what your, your non-negotiables are. And in some cases, that means you're willing to let legislation fail Mm. Knowing that you're gonna get some folks on the record voting against it or for it, you know, de- mm. depending on the position that you're taking. Mm. All right. So, I, well, let me ask because you brought up the, um, the historical black neighborhood ordinance. If you want to, and now the anti-displacement ordinance. If you want to touch on, like, what is it for folks who who may not be aware of what's happening and kind of what the crux of it are? Because I think there are some. Some certain there's certainly some misinformation about right. what it is and what you you hope for it to do. So the ordinance does three main things, and you can read this ordinance. Um, it's on PrimeGov City website, LouisvilleKY.gov. You can go to my website, JacoriaArthur.com. You can go to the Historically Black Neighborhoods Assembly website, HBNAssembly.org. It's all over the place, but it does three main things. One, it creates a displacement assessment Mm -hmm. or displacement test. Mm -hmm. So when developers want to build something, when they want to build residential uh, projects, they have to make sure it's affordable for the Mm -hmm. people who are living in that area. If not, they don't get city resources. What are city resources? Letters of support, money, Mm -hmm. land. There are certain actions that city employees can take to support things or you know, not support things. You cannot get city resources if what you're building isn't affordable for the people who are there. Mm-hmm. Two, it also creates this anti-displacement commission with people who are in the most at-risk areas of town so that they get to help make decisions about some of those projects. If you fail that test, come in front of us so we can tell you what you can do to make it better for the people who live there. Mm-hmm. Three, it creates an investigation process with our Human Relations Commission to address urban renewal, to address redlining, to address some of these ills that the city of Louisville has put on our people. And this goes back to what you said earlier about what can cities do as far as repair? This. Mm. And we saw this in Evanston, Illinois, that the concept where they called it reparations. It's really just a, a housing program. Mm. And Louisville has had that, but our ordinance would make the programs intentional. So if you went through redlining back in the day, if you went through urban renewal back in the day, if you were discriminated against and lost your property, your business, your home back in the day, for all these programs we got, down payment assistance, any business grants or loan programs, you should be moving to the top of that list. Right. You shouldn't have to apply with everybody else who, you know, who just got here or who never had to deal with those, those harms. So to a certain extent, this is the remedy that we talk about when we say what can local governments do. Mm-hmm. But that is, that is the legislation, not only... Mm-hmm preventing de- um, developments that can harm us and displace us, mm-hmm. but also making sure that people get access to these programs that were meant to address those harms in the past mm-hmm. that in some cases never even get to the people who need them the most. Right. And so to be clear for folks listening, right, like this isn't to say that, you know, non-affordable projects shouldn't happen, you know, in in these neighborhoods or in these communities. It is simply saying if they're going to happen, we don't have to publicly fund them um, right. in order for them to take place. Right. If you want to build some luxury condos at 28 from Broadway, you got to use your own money. Mm. You got to use your own land. You got to use your own resources. Don't come to the city asking us to help you displace folks. And when we talk about displacement, I, I want to be clear. It's not just the mere fact of people getting moved out. We're talking about affordability. Most people are spending most of their income on housing. Mm-hmm. 
And when you cannot afford that housing, you're forced to make hard decisions. Am I going to pay that rent? Or am I going to pay for these groceries? Or am I going to pay for daycare? Am I going to pay for this medical? We don't want you to have to be forced to make those decisions. Mm -hmm. Housing should be affordable for everyone. And when we think about the people who can't afford their housing the most, the people at the lowest level of income, a lot of times we're talking about fixed income folks. We're talking about seniors who can't work Mm -hmm. or people who are disabled who can't work or college students who are trying to get an education, who can't have a full-time living wage job to pay for their housing needs. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to address those issues. And when we talk about displacement, I mean, we're really talking about so many layers of priorities from housing in itself mm-hmm. to also public safety. Mm-hmm. If you do not have stable housing, you are nine to 10 times more likely um, to die before the, the average life expectancy of mm-hmm. your area for your kids to have poor health. I mean, it, it leads to so much. It also leads to, to crime. You know, it, it leads to a lot, and we're trying to prevent that with this legislation. Mm. Wanna, before we start to, to wrap up, though, I want to transition to Simmons and your time there. And, you know, you talk always so glowingly about, you know, what it's meant for you to be able to, to join faculty there and, and to, to be a part of that legacy. Um, and I just want you to be able to kind of expound on that, like what Simmons means, not just to you, but um, to this community, right? Like, because for some folks, like I think the history of Simmons is somewhat unknown, right? Like, because it, it, it did kind of go into a, a spate, a place of hiatus and where it wasn't really fully functional. And so most people, or I don't know about most, but a lot of people only kind of know it in its resurgence. Um, and don't have a historical perspective of it. And so can you talk a little bit about what Simmons is and, and what it means to Louisville, what it means to black Louisville, what it means to the Commonwealth? So I wish we had we had a whole podcast episode <laughs> yeah. just talking about Simmons. <laughs> so I'm trying to be brief. Uh, but what makes Simmons special? I would say it's it's probably the only comeback college in history where you had people who were formerly enslaved create this college, build this college from the ground up, lose it, you know, going into the Great Depression, and then eventually get it back. You know, Dr. Mm-hmm. Dr. Cosby was able to get it back. That is a story that we really got to be proud of mm-hmm. because their HBCUs sh- shut down and they probably ain't never going to open doors ever again. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We, we almost had a situation like that with our other HBCU, K-State. So, like, just... Shout out to all the HBCUs, but these historically black colleges and universities were the only places that we could go to get a degree, Mm -hmm. to get our higher education. And Simmons, you know, way back in the golden ages was considered, you know, people called it the quote unquote Harvard of the South, Mm -hmm. where you could go and get a medical degree, go and get a music degree, go and get a law degree right here in the state of Kentucky when no other college whether we're talking about U of L, UK, whoever, would allow you to go. So that's important. Fast forward to today, not only were the original you know, buildings and the campus brought back, but we're starting to bring back those degree programs as well. Mm-hmm. And it's just a blessing to be a part of that adventure and be a part of that growth. Because my personal story, I wish I went to an HBCU. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what it meant to go to an HBCU and and that sense of belonging. Mm. And unfortunately, I went through what I went through at the University of Louisville 
which is the reason why a lot of folks, you know, black folks should attend HBCUs. I didn't feel a sense of belonging at the University of Louisville. Mm. Almost got kicked out of the music school for trying to take hip hop music and take what I grew up listening to and fuse it and use it in practice with what I learned there, which was classical music. Mm -hmm. And that experience for me, it, it put this large chip on my shoulder where it's like, now I'm teaching at Simmons. I gotta make sure that my students know, you know, the Simmons slogan, see yourself, but also be yourself. You should be able to learn, you know, how to be a professional musician through all of these incredible and beautiful genres that we created in the United States of America, mm -hmm. not just through Mozart, not just through Haydn, not just through Tchaikovsky and Beethoven. We got 12 notes. <laughs> we got 12 pitches. And no matter how you arrange them and, and, the, and the rhythm that goes behind them and the drums that go behind them, you should be able to, to learn your craft and go out here and play with the best of them. Mm -hmm. So it, it's been important for me just on a personal mission and a professional mission to make sure that Simmons has the highest sense of excellence for our future musicians, our future educators. I'm in the sociology department doing some organizing work. We want our students to be change agents, mm. you know, so as much as I talk about being in that change for the larger community, that is my job at Simmons. And I'm so blessed to be able to have that job and be a part of that work. And I just think it'll keep growing from there. You know, we're talking about mm -hmm. doing some, some community education, some community civics where you ain't got to be enrolled at Simmons. Just pull up and, and be a part of learning what it's like to pass policy. And Simmons is, is really already doing that through the West Louisville Forum and through other programs, but we're trying to go even deeper with the Jesse Jackson Center, mm -hmm. with so many of these efforts, with the American Descendants of Slavery Movement being a partner with our institution. Mm -hmm. Simmons is just constantly trying to trying to do what we can to, to work with and partner with the black community and raise up the black community, which in, in turn really raises up the whole community at large. Absolutely. And so, I mean, it is it's amazing to be in a city and to kind of watch this thing build and, and to grow. And, and, you know, I'm excited to see, um, you know, where it goes and how it can be impactful, because I, I just believe, you know, I, I worked for a long time in higher education um, at a PWI. Um, but. I always felt like institutions of higher education have such an opportunity to do more for community. Um, and unfortunately, far too many of them, and this is across the board, HBCUs, PWIs, the whole nine, tend to get so caught up in whatever's happening inside of their gates um, that they forget like there's an entire world um, that exists outside and that they have a responsibility to that world outside of them. Um, and so it is it is amazing to see, you know, Simmons trying to push um, against that and to figure out ways that they can ingrain themselves into everyday life of folks who are not students or not faculty um, at those institutions. And so I'm appreciative of, of the work that is happening there. Um, Two things before I, I let you go. One is I talk a lot about Louisville, and this is, you know, me as man, I'm transplant, been here eight years or so, but I talk a lot about how, for me, um, I view Louisville as being a place that is both incredibly close, but also incredibly far away to getting it right. Like, probably more so than any other place that I've ever been in um, or experienced that, you know, 
we've got what we need to actually do right by all of our citizens to really get this whole thing called equity um, and, and uh, you know, all of the things that go with that actually getting it right. Um, but I think one of the huge hurdles for us really is in leadership and just kind of an absence of consistent, courageous leadership. And I, and I view, you know, as I've, I've watched you and, and talked to you, like I, I view you as somebody who has demonstrated courageous leadership um, in, in the roles that you've taken on. And I wonder for you, and it, this may be the same answer that you've given earlier, but I, I just want to ask is where do you find your courage? I got, I got kids, I got students, and you know I, I find courage in a lot of places, but my default is I, I think about young people mm. who, in some cases, don't have the power or the cognitive skills yet to be involved in, in some of the, the work that we're doing as leaders, and you gotta be able to pass something off to them and I'm not talking about it's like generational wealth and legacy. I'm talking about work. <laughs> yeah. I'm talking about when my son is older, what have I established as far as leadership that I can give him to he can continue to work? Because I ain't going to be able to do everything before I'm, I'm dead and gone. Right. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm going to do as much as I can, but eventually I'm going to tap out. Yeah. And then I got to pass it to him. I got to pass it to you know the next generation of the young prodigies. We, we got to pass this off eventually. And, and I think to a certain extent, that's, that's what a struggle has been coming from, you know, I think the civil rights generation, um, our boomers going to Gen X, going to the millennials, and then eventually Gen Z and Generation Alpha, where my son is, we got to learn how to pass things off. Mm -hmm. And they give me courage because I know my six-year-old Ain't gonna ain't gonna be able to stand up and, and protest and, and go into that city council chamber and, and do some of the things that I got to do right now, but if I don't do everything that I can while I can, one day he's gonna have to just repeat. <laughs> you know what I mean? Instead of having a sense of, of progress, he's gonna have to repeat that and kind of be stuck in in a cycle and in a system that we don't want him to be stuck in. Mm. And I said this a lot in 2020. It's like whatever we do now will have an impact 50 years from now um, to hopefully prevent something that happened 50 years from this, you know, thinking about protests and thinking about people who were killed and the injustice and, mm -hmm. and police violence and whatnot. So th the kids give me courage. Um, I always talk about the power of the people stronger than the people in power. But when it comes to power, you got to have energy and ain't nobody got more energy than them. So, yeah, for real. <laughs> so you know, the, the, the young folks, mm -hmm. they give me courage. And um, especially when I just think about the young prodigies and all the JCPS black student unions, mm -hmm. um, the Mighty Shades of Ebony. I mean, there are so many young people in this city who are fighting back and they motivate me. You know, those mm -hmm. are my heroes. They inspire me beyond belief. So I just want to give so many flowers to them and shout them out because they give me courage every single day. And you talked about, um, you know, where you find hope in young people and old people, um, our, uh, our elders um, and ancestors. The question I always ask folks is, what is your hope for Louisville? So a as a Kingonian, um, I subscribe to something known as the triple evils. Mm. And, you know, that that includes classism, you know, poverty, 
Um, any form of societal ill where you just don't have enough of what you need to, to do what you need, your basic needs being met. It includes racism in all forms of discrimination. It also includes militarism in all forms of violence. So my hope, my dream, my utopia for the city of Louisville is that we end the, the triple evils. Mm. And, and like I said, I'm, I'm gonna be dead and gone before we get to that. But I gotta hope that we're gonna get to that one day. We are more than capable of having um, a peaceful Louisville, more than capable of having an equitable Louisville, more than capable of having a Louisville where we don't have poverty and everyone has housing and their basic needs met. Mm -hmm. We just got to keep fighting for it. And that's what I'm going to do while I'm here. I'm going to keep fighting. Facts. Well, Councilman, I thank you uh, for joining us on on the show. And let me just say to you again, like, um, have just appreciated, you know, the way in which you have represented the people, the way in which you have carried yourself um, and carried us um, as black folks into uh, Metro Hall and and done the work for us. You have been not just a a passionate voice and an advocate and a fiery voice, but brilliant right like that you you have thought about you know how this works and how these things intersect and how policy works and how do you craft it in ways that that fits the you know structures and systems that we currently have however antiquated but also that actually works for people and that is um that is a a skill and a and a and a technique that we don't find in quite frankly in many elected officials, um, or maybe it's one that exists and just one that they're not willing to use um, as readily as you do. And so it is it is just a pleasure to be able to watch you work um, and what you've been able to do in the time that you have it, man. That thank you, you have. Thank you. Thank you really blessed this community um and like i said have have opened doors man like there are folks who are going to be um councilmen mayors you know congress people what have you because they saw you um and that is that is a legacy that that you know will long outlast you um but will make a huge difference in our community and so thank you for that thank you for your partnership with the league i mean you've always been down with us um and have helped to support us and to help shape and guide some of the work that we've done and i appreciate that um on behalf of the organization and certainly on behalf of me personally man so i appreciate you um in all that you do and so thank you and we'll we'll certainly have to do this again because i got had a whole bunch of other things that came up. I was like, oh, we, we can we talk will. about this, we can we talk will, about that. Yeah. Um, so we're going to have to do this again. And I just want to hold the mirror up and say thank you. Hey. Thank you to the league for all the work that y'all do, you know, over a century of, of being those change agents that I want my students to aspire to be like. And I, I just really appreciate y'all and everything that you've done, everything Thank you're you. doing, everything that you aspire to do. I'll never forget we were with that group working on the violence prevention yep. money. And I mentioned something about housing and, and the dollars. You know, I'm, I'm getting into the data. And Lyndon looked up from across the room at this long table. And he was like, yeah, you said how much it costs. And I'm thinking, so? That's how much it costs. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you know, 
gotta put me in check sometimes. Like, <laughs> we're analytical. But like I say that to say I'm nothing without you. I'm nothing without the league. I'm I'm nothing without my ancestors. I'm nothing without my kids. I'm nothing without my granny, my mama, my daddy, my auntie. For sure. I am as powerful as the people who put power in me. And my constituents, to my students, to my kids, to the Urban League. And I just thank you all uh-huh. for always being the source of that power. And let's keep working and let's keep fighting. Absolutely. And ladies and gentlemen, that is Listen Up, the Louisville Urban League's radio show and podcast. Thank you for joining us again. You can catch us every Thursday when we release new episodes. Um, wherever you get your favorite podcast, be sure to subscribe, rate us, review us, let us know what you think of the show. Um, you all have a safe and blessed week, and we will uh, catch you next time. Thank you, Sherilyn. I'm sure it's in the can this time. We're good. Appreciate you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs>